In Ephesians chapter 3 today, looking at verses 14 to 21, exceedingly abundantly above. Lord, open our hearts and minds to hear from you all that your spirit is speaking to the church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we ended last time, which actually was like three weeks ago, <laughs> because we had Bill Osborne here from uh, Hungary, then we had our Easter service, and so some of you guys not, may not remember even in the book of Ephesians. But uh, either way, we, we are here, and, and last time together, we looked at verse 13, we ended there, where he says, therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. Interesting statement. Paul says that his difficulties, his sufferings, his trials, his tribulations were a part of him being fruitful in the church. You might remember back, this is a part of Paul's calling. When the Lord first spoke to him, and, and this was actually through Ananias that laid hands on the Apostle Paul in Acts 9, he said, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name to the Gentiles, to kings, wow, and to the children of Israel. And I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus said in this world, we'll have tribulations. He's, that's all of us. But there's those times when we are in the tribulations, it's the most miserable, but we are also the most fruitful. Remember in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, man, I, I can't minister. I have so many difficulties surrounding me, the thorn in my flesh that I, I, I can't be fruitful. God, you, you might as well take me home. He's pushed above measure, beyond strength, despairing of life because I can't do it. And the Lord said, you're right where I want you, Paul, because in your weakness, my strength will be perfected. And then Paul said, well, let it rain on me then. <laughs> Poverty, physical afflictions, emotional affliction, whatever it takes, God I just want to be the most fruitful I can be. So he said that you, you see difficulties. Oh, poor Apostle Paul. No, th this is my calling. And this is how I am the most fruitful. And it's to your glory. Paul says this for all of us in Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. I love this, joint heirs with Christ. We share in the Son's inheritance. If indeed we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together. And so rejoice in your trials, James says, knowing that they're producing what? A character that's complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. In 2 Timothy 2, 11, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, that's what tribulations do, don't they? They cause us to die when we don't want to die. But if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. Isn't that what he said in Romans 8? If we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together. There's a special reward. Jim Elliott, who was killed trying to reach an indigenous tribe, said this, He is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Our life is a vapor, isn't it? And, and if the Lord allows us to suffer, it's for a fraction of a second compared to eternity, right? If my son's trying to climb a tree, I don't just pick him up and put him in the tree because every time he tries to lift and get in that tree, his muscles are getting built. He's growing stronger. If the kid's struggling with his math homework, I don't just do it for him. If I do it for him, he'll flunk the test, right? But we let them struggle and complain and we tell them, stay in your struggle. But it's so hard to do this math. I know it is. Let me help you a little bit, but you got to keep, I hate you. You're the worst parents in the world. <laughs> I want to go play. Yeah, as soon as your homework's done. And, and we, 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 we put trials on people, on our kids at least, right? So they grow. So they get smarter. They get stronger. Same with the Lord. It's not him hating us or not liking us. It's causing us to be stronger and greater in character and more fruitful. Well, today in verse 14, it's important we remember verse 13 because he starts off saying, for this reason. Understanding that trials, tribulations, sufferings are a part of the plan. It's not God not paying attention. It's not God being a mean God. It's not God being a weak God. It's a part of the plan. And I don't know about you, but when I'm pushed above measure, beyond strength, despairing of life itself, what do you do? Paul says, I bow my knees. <laughs> Often life brings us to our knees, huh? And that's a great place to be. That's a great place to be. Often bowing our knees does humble our heart. Have you noticed that in the Bible? Many of the things that God has asked us to do in seeking him and worshiping him is humbling to us. I think that's a part of the plan. Lifting your hands in worship. Oh, that's so childish. Yeah, unless you're converted and become as a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. I was raised in a denominational church where if you lifted your hands, you were immature Christian. Real Christians don't have to lift their hands. Their worship is so deep. They don't need to clap their hands or lift their hands or, you know. And then I read in the Bible, lift your hands, and, I, and the Lord just said, obey me. And I remember going to church where nobody lifted their hands and, and just like, oh, I can't do this. This is so humiliating. But then I got the one hand up about that high. And there was a, there was a cracking of the pride of my heart happening. And God said, read it again, hands, plural. Oh, man, I can't do the one-arm thing. Because you, be, you can be sort of studly with the one-arm thing. But the two-arm thing, oh, now, you know. And then he said, lift. You know, keep it down, scoot down in the pew a little bit. Nobody can quite see I'm even doing it. No, lift. And I lifted my hands. It was cracking my heart. I was so... Had pride, I had no idea. And when I lifted my hands, there was a humbling that came. And it was just a joy in worship. And then clapping your hands. Then shouting to the Lord with the voice of triumph. Boy, all these things do 
help us in our hearts. Physical acts and bowing our knees is one of them. It's truly a sign of submission. Just like lifting your hands. Freeze! Oh, lift my hands. Okay. I'm submitted. I surrender. Don't shoot me. It's, it's a humbling thing. It's a sign of surrender. Hum, bowing our knees is, is what they did before kings. Any of you guys have a problem that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords? So it be, should be joyful for us to bow before him. But yet, it is a thing that brings humility. Now, I love what Dave Guzik says on this. The Bible has enough prayers not on the knees to show us that it isn't required. But it also has enough prayers on the knees to show us that it is good. Solomon prayed on his knees. Ezra prayed on his knees. The psalmist prayed on his knees. Daniel prayed on his knees. People came to Jesus a number of places in the Gospels. They came on their knees. Stephen prayed on his knees. Peter prayed on his knees. Paul prayed on his knees. Other early Christians prayed on their knees. We can find in the book of Acts. And the most importantly, what? Jesus prayed on his knees. I do think that it is a good thing for us to bow on our knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is an interesting thing, that we pray to the Father through the Son by the power or the help of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray what? Our Father. You've got to realize, in the Hebrew mindset, read the Old Testament. You don't have God as Father. That's a New Testament teaching. Jesus brought us that insight that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our Father. Now, He's not our Father on earth. What's it say? Our Father who art in heaven. So there's a respect. He, we have the intimacy of, in, in the Hebrew, it's Abba, Daddy. Abba, Abba, Abba. Daddy, Daddy. That's what Jesus said. Intimacy, tenderness. But he's still in heaven. You're still on earth. <laughs> so there is a reverential need. Thus we get on our knees. We reverence ourselves, Daddy, who's in heaven. <laughs> We're still in the sinful body. He's holy and pure and seraphim and seraphim flying around him saying, holy, holy, holy. So I, I, I'd just like to clarify something here. In Deuteronomy 6, we know that verse, the Lord our God is what? One Lord. There's only one God. But yet, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we are constantly brought to attention that God is in three persons. And there is one substance of God, so to speak, but yet three persons that have three distinct roles, sometimes three different job descriptions, sometimes the same job description. 
All three persons of the Trinity were active in creation. All three persons of the Trinity were active in the resurrection. But yet, the Father often has one singular different job from the Son, from the Holy Spirit. One God. So we should never forget we have one God. So therefore, we could actually say that if you were to pray to any one of the three persons of the Trinity, it would not be wrong. If you prayed to Jesus, that wouldn't be wrong. Stephen did that in Acts 7, 59. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like Jesus on the cross prayed to the Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen prayed to Jesus. Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's nothing wrong with that. And in actuality, since the cross, it probably is something that would happen more, that we pray directly to Jesus. In Philippians 2, we hear the Father's will in this. After the cross, in verse 8 through 11, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God the Father has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him, Jesus, the name which is now above all and every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, listen, to the glory of God the Father. The first person of the Trinity is saying, after the death and resurrection of my son, things have changed. Even though I am the first person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son is the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, it is my will, what glorifies me, is that Jesus would be glorified in the Trinity above all. And so, it wouldn't be wrong to pray to Jesus, but yet, consistently through the New Testament, we have the prayers going to the Father in the name of the Son by the power or the help of the Holy Spirit. So all three persons are active. We just actually looked at this back in Ephesians 2.18. Paul says it perfectly. For through him, referring to Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And so we come to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom the whole family, notice, our family in heaven, already in heaven, and our family still upon the earth is named. So the entire family of God is in, named in the Father. We are the Father's family. We are the Father's children. Who are we? We're the children of God. Who are we? We're citizens of heaven. Who are we? We are brothers and sisters in one family. You guys know that's true in DNA, right? <laughs> we all go back to Adam and Eve. And then after that, we all got off the ark together. Right? We all go back and we're all related to Noah in some way. We are truly in the DNA 
connected as family. But much more importantly, in the name of the Father, we are connected as family. You say, okay, that's a good point. Why is that important? Because we're going to keep going on in Ephesians. And in chapter 4, he's going to say, because we're family, we should be unified. Because we're all connected to the Father and we're unified with the Father, that should spell out in unity with one another. He's going to call us one body of one spirit. We are all connected into one family and God is our Father forever and ever and ever. So whatever your family connections are on earth by blood, it's, it's very temporary, isn't it? But our family connections in the Spirit through the Son is for eternity. Well, in verse 16 now, and that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. That God would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Can you wrap your brain around that? The riches of his glory. God being glorified. There upon the throne. The sheriff and the seraphim, they have two wings they cover their face with. They have two wings they cover their feet with. And they have another two wings they fly with. Because God is so glorious that not even angels made for heaven can look upon God and survive. Pretty radical, isn't it? But here he says to us that out of these riches of God's glory, in essence, he's saying this, that nothing of God's power, of God's grace would be lacking. Let me say it that way. Would God grant you and you would be lacking in no aspect of God's power, of God's love, of God's grace. There would be nothing lacking in your life. I think it would look like Hebrews 4.16 tells us, we would therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I think that if we are filled up with the Spirit and we realize this relationship is by grace, grace is what? We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. There's nothing I have done that would undo that and there's nothing I would do that would improve on that. I know when I was a teenager, I felt I had a pretty good week with not sinning that much. I felt like God owed me by Thursday or Friday. It's like, I've been a good boy. And so I'm going to pull out a bigger prayer request than I normally do because I think I've earned it. Most weeks it was the opposite. I can't wait till Sunday comes because I got to get saved again. Because man, has it been a rough week. That was most of the time. And I felt like I couldn't even pray. By Thursday or Friday, I just, I would try to pray and I felt like such a hypocrite. I felt like I was just... I had no right to talk to God. I definitely had no right to ask God for anything because I was so sinful and unworthy and, and struggling. And, you know, I just felt like I, I didn't, it just didn't, it wasn't appropriate for me to pray. I mean, isn't that just sad? I, I hope that none of you 
have such a concept of Christianity. Because he's saying this right here, that you would understand what's been granted to you in all the riches of God's glory and that you would always come boldly to that throne of grace. That you would always feel like I, I am coming not because I'm worthy, not because I've earned it, not because I'm good enough, not because in myself I'm holy or righteous or pure. I'm in a sinful body that, that just constantly struggles with every possible sin on this earth. If not in reality, in my mind and in my heart, I'm never worthy. I'm never good enough. But that's not why I come boldly. I come boldly because I'm coming to God's throne, which is a throne of what? Grace. And I'm coming asking for grace and mercy. Not God give me what I deserve, but out of the resources of his glory. In Ephesians 3.20, we're getting ready to study this verse in just a minute, but I, I can't hold back. Now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? It's glorious. Not only are we coming boldly to the throne of grace, but I, God's, God's getting ready to unleash on us exceedingly abundantly above and beyond what we ask or even what we even considered in our finite brain. Do we get this? We've been granted to come into the riches of his glory. So that's what we should live by. Who are we? We're children of God. Who are we? We are rich. How much? All the riches of God. Lacking nothing. All the power of God is at our disposal. Lacking nothing. All the mercies of God are ours. We're not begging for them. We're not asking for them. We're coming, coming boldly to that throne of grace going, I'm your child. <laughs> I need grace and mercy to help me in my time of need. And we're not begging for it. We're, we're his kids. We're a part of his family. He's our Abba. He's our daddy. Do we understand the relationship here? We just studied that God already sees us seated together with Christ in heavenly places. We're already there in his mind. We already sees into the future and sees us glorified in our glorified body together with him. And then he says, out of the riches of this glory, to be strengthened with might. This is that word dunamis. We get our word dynamite from. We just studied this last week. The baptism of the Holy Spirit there in Acts 1.8. And you shall receive power, dunamis. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witness to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Here he is saying now you have been strengthened with dunamis. The power of God's Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost and it is yours. It's for every single believer. Remember in Acts 8, Philip had gone, or had gone and preached the gospel in an area of Samaria and and the apostles heard they had received Christ as their Savior, but the dunamis had not yet came upon them. 
So Peter and James, two of the big guns, went down there to this new Christian church and they said, hey, we're glad that you're born again. We're glad the Spirit's inside you, but you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he laid hands on them. We don't know if they prophesied or spoke in tongues. We don't know what happened, but the power of God was evident in their life. Well, you have been strengthened with that dunamis. God wants to fill you up, not with the Holy Spirit just with us or in us, but the Holy Spirit upon us. And the power of that Spirit, notice it's through His Spirit in the inner man. We have a physical body. That's not hard for us to imagine, is it? (laughs) We are so consumed with our physical body, right? I mean, we, we are combing it, we are washing it, we are brushing it, we are clothing it, we are, you know, we are feeding it. We, we are just constantly all day long dealing with this physical body. Well, we also have a spiritual body. When this physical body dissolves and becomes dust, our spiritual body will be thriving, <laughs> Right? It didn't die. That's why Jesus said, you believe in me, you're not going to die. But, but, but Christians are dying. No, they're physical bodies going back to dust from which it came from. That means nothing. You're, you're, you, your spiritual, your inner body, man, whatever you want to call it, it's going to live forever. So to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord, right? We're not dying. We're shedding, this, we're shedding this miserable piece of flesh. That's all we're doing. So death, there's no sting in it. There's rejoicing. And so he says here that, that the Holy Spirit's power wants to strengthen that inner man. He wants you to grow in your spiritual man. To be strengthened and to grow and to be strengthened and to grow and mature in our spiritual man. Boy, that's all over the Bible, but yet this term is only found one time in the Bible right here, the term inner man. But what a fantastic term it is. Well, skipping on down to verse 17 now. At that, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So now he has this amazing statement that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, hold it. You're saying that Christ doesn't come into my heart till one of the apostles prays for it? That doesn't make sense, does it? He's talking to these believers. He said it all over chapter one, that Christ is in their hearts, that they are believers. So why would be Paul be praying this? It's already a fact. Why would Paul be asking for Christ to dwell in their hearts? Well, I'll just tell you, there are times in your language, in our case, English, where the language doesn't work. You have to go back to the original. There are times that you've got to know about the historical culture, right? We just studied the book of Ruth. And the guy who won't take on the wife of the dead brother has to take his sandal off and hand it to her, and he's known as the guy with no sandals. It's like, what in the world? I mean, you can't study American history and figure that one out. 
you got to go back and study the culture of the history at the time that book was written to understand what it means to us today, right? So there are times when we're reading the New Testament that our English language just is not sufficient and it just doesn't work. And therefore, we've got to go to the Greek in which the Bible was, the New Testament was written in to understand it. So what was Paul saying to them that these hearers of this first generation would have understood? Paul's prayer is not praying that the Holy Spirit would come into their hearts. That's already happened. But what is he saying? It's concentrating on this word dwell, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. David Guzik's commentary says this, two ancient Greeks' word convey the idea to live in or to dwell in. One has the idea of living in a place as a stranger. The other has the idea of settling down in a place to make your permanent home. Dwell uses the ancient Greek word here for permanent home. Jesus wants to settle down in your heart, not visiting as a stranger, but to be your permanent home. What is he saying to the believers there? Trust God. Don't let go. You know what I, I, I find often I do as a pastor? Is I'm first undoing bad teaching from other churches. And often the teaching is this. Yes, you're saved, but if you go through a time of struggling with sin, now I can only say, I think you're saved. I'm not sure anymore. And nor should you be sure. And if you're here today and you've been sinning this week, you need to rededicate your life to the Lord. You need to get saved again. You need to pray to be born again again. Because you need to, whatever commitment you made in the past with an interlude of struggle might have undone it. So let's get saved again. Guys, that just couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus said, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, he could have, he could have just said it differently if, if that doctrine I just talked about was true. Whoever believes in me most likely won't perish. We'll have to see. And I'm going to give you a better life now on earth, but I can't promise eternity. That's the way people are translating that. But understand, he said, I give you what? Eternal life. If you understand the term eternal life, once you got it, you can't unhave it. Because if I give you eternal life, that's an eternal promise. It is not possible to undo an eternal promise. Do you understand that? Once he gives you eternal life, he can never not give you eternal life. Because once he gives it to you, you got it. It can't be undone by the very fact that he said eternal. He could have said, you shall not perish but have life. And then we can decide what that life is. 
Maybe it's a better quality of life on earth. Maybe it is eternal life. He didn't promise eternal life. He just promised life. So what's that mean? So we, we could have discussed what that meant. And that would have been a wonderful promise, right? You shall not perish, but have life. That would have been wonderful. But he didn't want you to think it was temporary. He didn't want you to think that it could be changed. He didn't want you to think it could be lost. He knows our frame. He knows how weak and sinful and struggling we are in this human flesh. Therefore, he up front says, if you believe in me, you shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. It can't change by the very fact of what it says. And this is so essential because people are often thinking, I'm so upset with God because he's told me to be holy and I can't get there. He's told me to live a pure life and I'm trying, but it seems like the harder I try, the worse I do at it. And, and, and it starts, you start getting frustrated with Christianity. God keeps telling me to do something that I'm not possible that I can do or I struggle to do it when I do do it. It's very difficult and, I, and it's hard to maintain. And I love God. I want to be holy for God. I'm just finding the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. A wretched man that I am. Do you you understand? God is your father. Could you you imagine one of your kids struggling with one of your dad's commands? I mean, imagine this. I'm sitting at home. My son said he's going to go for a bike ride. And it's say he's seven years old at the time. And I say to him before he goes, now remember on some of those corners, there's gravels. Be careful, don't fall. But now my son's gone. He's supposed to be gone for, usually he's gone a half an hour. It's been three hours and nobody's seen it and I'm worrying. And I get this phone call going, hey, is this Brian Newberry? Yeah. Well, I, I live two blocks over from you, and um, your son's here, and he's got a skinned up knee, he's bleeding, and uh, he just doesn't really want to come home. He's not sure if he can come home, but he's not really sure if he wants to come home either because he, he fell and, and crashed and skinned up his knee pretty bad. Now, what would I do as a dad? I would go and get him and saying, what is going on? And he's a little timid going, dad, you told me not to fall. And I did. And I just thought, man, that, you know, I, I just didn't feel like I could come home. And, and I, I didn't know if I'd be comfortable if I did come home again. And, and I didn't want to disappoint you. And I was bleeding all over the place. And I ripped my pants. And there, there's just so many things that just, it's just, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around it. I, I don't know if I, if I really do want to come home. And if I do, I don't know if I, I'm really going to be comfortable living with you anymore. <laughs> I mean, how, how crazy ridiculous would that be? What would you do? You'd grab your son and just, oh, you'd hug him and hug him and kiss him and, and try to convey to them. You didn't say, don't fall. And if you do, I'm going to condemn you, make you a second class citizen in the home make you start living in the doghouse, eating leftovers after we all finish dinner. 
I, I didn't say any of that. I was just saying, be careful, because I, I want you to have a good experience and not a hurtful experience. There was no condemnation in what I said. There was no judgment at the end of that. I mean, isn't that what God is telling us? He wants us to, to be righteous, not so he can say, yeah, that's the way we are. We're a bunch of righteous people here. You guys that are struggling with righteousness, get out. We're, you're, you're messing up our club. That's not, God's not wanting us to be righteous or pure or holy or honest or faithful so he, we don't give him a bad name. It's because that's where freedom is, right? When we, we walk honestly, we're freer. When we walk in purity, we're freer. We have less skin knees. <laughs> we have less bruises. We're not ripping up our life with, with those kind of decisions. But as we walk in his nature that he created us in, is where we have freedom. And so he is saying here, guys, I want you to make Jesus a permanent dweller in your heart. Not a stranger. It's not a temporary thing. He did not do that with you. Listen to John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and what? Make our home with him. Jesus is saying, I and the Father are coming to be a permanent resident in your heart. That's our plan. Now, you need to respond. And that's what Paul is saying here. Respond and say, Lord, you want to come and dwell and make your home in my heart. I want my heart to be your permanent home. This is a permanent thing. You're moving in permanently, and I want you to live here permanently. This is what Paul is saying. That Christ may dwell in your hearts. And of course, he says, as we're not surprised, through faith. We're not going to feel it, are we? These sinful bodies are just depressing. Our struggles with our flesh is just demoralizing sometimes, isn't it? But the righteous man falls seven times, and what else does he do? What's the righteous man do? He falls seven times, and he also what? He gets up seven times. He doesn't get up six times, or five times. Why does he get up every time? Because he knows, I'm coming into a throne of grace. And I am rich with all the glories of God as his child. He already, I'm already seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus upon the throne. Isn't that amazing? It's already happened. It's already done. I am just, I'm not fighting for victory. I'm fighting already obtaining victory. And God is never going to leave me, nor what? Do you guys believe that? Lo, he is with us. How often? Always even to the end of the earth, which we're almost there. <laughs> we all figured that out this last year, right? <clears throat> we're either going to get destroyed by China 
or we're going to get destroyed by our communist government, but some communist government's going to end our, end our time at Disneyland. It doesn't matter because this is in our home. We're not citizens here. We're just being lights and salts in the midst of a dark earth. And it's getting darker. So our light will shine all the brighter. But we are doing this through faith, not through our feelings. Not, not because it, it seems that that's true. No. Often spirituality seems the opposite of true. God loves us. But it doesn't always seem that way. We are holy as God is holy. But it doesn't seem that way. Life is but a vapor of time. But sometimes it feels like eternity. So we can't go by our observations or our feelings. We've got to go by the truth of God's word. Well, finishing up here in verse 17. Now being rooted and grounded in love. You being rooted and grounded in love. May be able to comprehend with all the saints. What is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. He gives two different expressions here. First, he says like a tree going down deep, wrapping itself around the rocks and getting down into the soil where it can't be uprooted or overturned. I want you to be like a living tree, rooted Then he says, I want you to be like a building with a deep foundation grounded in what? In love. Always true Christianity is desiring to go deeper, obey more, but it always has to be in a response to Christ's love, his grace, his mercy. Whatever your relationship with Christ ends up being by the end of this year, you need to understand God's love in a greater way for you. He really loves you. Now, remember that little baby was born? Those of you who had kids? And you're just like, oh man, I, I now know what love is. And then you have grandkids. Then you really know what love is. God loves us. Could your grandkid do anything where you would want to disown them or throw them away? I won't say that about kids because they're all close. (laughs) They're all real close. But grandkids, (laughs) of course not. God, God never wants to throw us away. God truly loves us. We are precious to him. And he wants us to be able to comprehend with all the saints. Now, he just told us which saints he's talking about. He's talking about the saints in heaven as well as the saints on earth. How well do you think the saints in heaven know of God's love right now? This is what he's saying. That it would be as clear to you that those who are in heaven with Christ right now, they know his love as they're in their new bodies with him in, in heaven or they're with him, not their new bodies yet until the rapture comes, but he's, they're with him in heaven They know of his love. And Paul says it's measurable. We thought it could be unmeasurable, but he said no. That you'd know the width and the length and the depth and the height. That there is a real measurable thing. It's not just an arbitrary thing. God loves you. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just a bunch of words. No. He's saying it's measurable. It's high, 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 high. 
And, and yes, it'll take our whole life to try to see how high his love is. It's wide, 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 wide. It reminds me of that song we used to sing in Sunday school as a kid. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing. I always wondered why that we sang that song. It didn't make sense. Now I know this verse. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, deep and wide. It's measurable. There's a fountain of his love flowing. I like what one person said, that the cross explains God's love. God's love is so wide, it's wide enough to include every person. Do you understand that? God doesn't just love an elect of people. God doesn't love just a select group of people. God loves everybody on this earth. God's love is long. It's long enough to last eternity. God's love is deep. It's deep enough to reach the worst sinners. God's love is high, high enough to reach into the heavens that we then would know the love of Christ. We'd be rooted and grounded in love, and then we would understand the width and the depth and the length, and, and then we would come to know Christ's love for us by faith. Jeremiah says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. He's loved us with an everlasting love. And it was out of loving kindness, tenderness, he wooed us to himself. This love passes knowledge. <laughs> so now he says, there's a height, the width, the depth. You have to know the love of Christ. But now he says, it's measurable, but it's also infinite. And our finite minds can't grasp it. So yes, you can look at it. And I see the height, the dip, the way I see, man, God loves me. Explain it to me. Uh, I can't explain it to you. But it's there. And it's non-ending. When I sin, I see his love. His grace abounds more. When I'm weak, he doesn't despise me for my weakness. He strengthens me. When I'm the prodigal, he hurts for me and he can't wait for my return. He weeps with me when I weep. He laughs with me when I laugh. I can't explain it. It passes our little finite brains because this love for us is infinite. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 9 through 16, it says this, but as it's written, I has not seen nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I had planned on reading the rest of that. We don't have time today, but it goes on to say that only the spiritual man can appraise these things. The natural man will never understand it or appreciate it. The natural man will always see the spiritual things as an insult and foolishness and demeaning, but the spiritual man gets it right. He discerns it correctly. And eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is entered the heart of man the things which God prepared for those who love him. You see, this is love. When we understand love, God's love for us, his desire for us, his joy in us, his smile upon us, 
our heart wells up with appreciation and then it grows from appreciation to thankfulness and then it grows into admiration and then eventually it grows into a response of love ourselves. God says, I love you. And I say, I love you more. He says, I love you more. And I'm like, no, 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 I love you more. And now I'm walking in purity, not to be righteous, so I'm a part of the club and I'm the captain of the righteous club. No, I'm walking in righteousness because I just love God and he loves righteousness and I love what he loves and I love what he loves to the degree he loves it. He doesn't like impurity and I hate what God hates to the degree God hates it. Why? Because we love each other. See, that's Christianity. That, that the world won't reject. I think there's a lot about religion that is just man and his head has thought up. And it doesn't represent the Jesus standing on the shore of Galilee teaching. It just doesn't represent him. I, I don't think Jesus was on the cross going, oh, now we can have a Pope in Italy. I can't wait till he gets that grand poobah hat and, and five pounds of gold around his neck. Okay, but I can make fun of us equally. I don't think, I think he was thinking that we would be like him along the shore of Galilee, just talking to people at the kingdom of God. We'd wear the clothes we wear throughout the week, not, not some collar or some special hat or some special robe. I think he just wants us to walk in the simplicity of Christ. And it all comes down to understanding his love for us and then all the obedience, all of the walking with him is a response to that love. And then I love this next part, that he would, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you understand that's impossible? But he says, we're going to try. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to, it's like filling up a, a pillowcase with some new uh, foam, right? I'm going to stuff it in there. Give me some more. I'm going to fill you up and keep filling you up. Your cup's going to overflow. Clark said it this way, among all the great sayings in this prayer, this is the greatest. To be filled with God is the greatest thing. To be filled with the fullness of God is still greater. But to be filled with all the fullness of God is utterly bewilders the sense and confounds the understanding. And now verse 20 and 21 now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all, we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So often we, we feel inadequate with our words. I, I hear constantly, I, don't, I just don't pray very good. I wish I prayed better. And I'm just like, Do you, it's just talking. And, and you're talking a, a whole lot right now. You're doing fine. We, we all talk too much, right? That Ecclesiastes, God in heaven, you're on earth, let your words be few. That was Solomon's wisdom. We, we talk just fine. But I, I think that's right. When I say it, did I really hit the nail on the head? I didn't. What's in my heart and what came out my mouth, they're not equal. My desire and, and the thoughts, I, I, I want something, but I can't even think the correct thought to even begin to pray the prayer. Well, I love this verse because he's saying 
There's not going to be a limitation with your, what you ask or what you think. God is looking directly into the meditations of your heart and he's doing exceedingly abundantly above even what you're thinking, more or less what you're asking. And then according to that power that works in us. Do we get this? God's spirit lives in us. God almighty, all powerful, the third person of the Trinity, God almighty lives in us. Nothing is impossible. All things are possible. Colossians 1.27, to them, be, to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Philippians 4.13, I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. Mark 9.23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. The flip side of the coin in Luke 137, for with God, nothing will be what? Impossible. All things are possible. Nothing's impossible. Listen to this crazy teaching by Jesus. On Mark 11, 22 to 24. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says this mountain be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things which he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. He, he says, believe you received it before the prayer is answered. Jesus isn't saying, now pray some pretty great things, but don't get crazy. He does, he says, get crazy. He says, when you pray, go, go mad. Speak to mountains, be uprooted and cast into the sea. That's, that's pretty extreme, don't you think? But this is his teaching. He is saying, I, I'm, in the, I'm in the job of doing exceedingly abundantly above what you think. And he says, think thoughts like this, mountains being moved. And I'll still do above that. What all that Paul is praying for believers is that in this passage today, what, what all has he said so far in this prayer, this second prayer in Ephesians, that we would have spiritual strength, we'd have the indwelling of Jesus, we'd have an experiential knowledge of God's love, and we would have the fullness of God. To him be the glory, where? In the church. Understand, this right here is the most important thing on God's planet. The church. The church is going to heaven. Did you know the Bible doesn't say Christ died for you? That's true, he did. But the Bible says Christ died for the church. Listen in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself for her. Satan minimizes the church. Non-believers minimize the church. But listen, Christians, don't you fall into that trap. What we're doing here this morning, we're going to learn in Ephesians 4, is monumental, is powerful and life-changing, ripping down strongholds of Satan, building us up spiritually to be fruitful. The most important thing happening on the planet is what God is doing in the church. 
And in Ephesians 4, 1 through 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you've been called with all lowliness and gentleness, with all longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. There is one body. Different churches meeting all over our planet, but we are linked together by one spirit who lives in each of us, by Christ Jesus to all generations, all generations, all generations. Here's what's sad, guys. The youngest generation right now that are teenagers and in their 20s, they've abandoned church worldwide. The amount of people in churches from teenagers up into mid-20s is the lowest it has ever been in human history. The college students have been liberalized by the craziest, stupid ideas. The progressive liberalism is just demonic. But they have been brainwashed. They have been taught that they have to accept this or you're going to you're going to get pressure that you're not going to want in your life if you don't cower to our thoughts. And let me tell you that something. When you have those communistic type ideas, the church is an opiate to the people. Remember under communism? In other words, church is a poison that destroys society under the communistic mindset. So whether they're told it directly or not, they get the message. Church is dividing us. Christianity is hurting us. The concept of God is futile and stupid and keeping us from reaching our greatest potential. We need to focus on us and our abilities and not pie in the sky with God. But Christ Jesus is for all generations and we need to pray for this young generation. Just like in the 60s with Calvary Chapel's beginning, the young people had left the church and left God, but God brought him back by a mighty Jesus movement. Amen. A lot of stuff we covered today. Quiz next week. So study it well. Uh, Lord, we come before you right now and Lord, line upon line, precept upon precept, there's still so much to be said. Deep, meaty doctrine we find in this most excellent book. So many giant boulders for us to stand upon. Such great, amazing truths that we are to build our lives upon. That we would know you, Christ, in true Christianity based on a relationship with you and based on the church, the fellowship of one heart, of one mind, of one spirit together and realizing that the preaching of the word through pastors and teachers is essential for the building up of every believer. Lord, we ask for this young generation that's been duped and lied to. Lord, bring a new revival, Lord, like you did with Chuck Smith and Kay Smith. Bring a new move of your power of your spirit upon us. That night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took the cup. 
and he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, when we take communion, take it in a worthy manner. What is that? I think it's by faith. Let's not just go through a ritual act and just forget we even did it. Let's just stop. The Lord is wanting us to come to his table. And although we don't see him, yet we love him. And although we're not physically with him, he is spiritually with us. Two or three gathered in his name, take that bread from his hand. The woman with the hemorrhage, she believed in her heart, if I just touch the very hem of Jesus' garment, I'll be healed. 12 years of a hemorrhage, all her money spent on doctors with no help whatsoever. And Jesus, as the crowd was around him, stopped. And he was surprised as much as everybody else was. And he says, virtue has gone out from me in the old King James, or power has gone out from me. Who has touched me? And they said, Lord, everybody. And he looked around. It was obvious to everybody and to Jesus also that this woman is the one who had touched him. And he said, woman, it's not my garment. It's your faith that has made you well. So we want to come in faith. We want to be like that woman who touched the hem of his garment and take this bread from his hand and say, Lord, we want all it means by your bruising for our iniquities that you were pierced through for our transgressions by your stripes were healed. Cast all your cares upon him. He cares for you. What is it you need? Do you need strengthened in the inner man? Is it you need love in your heart for others and God? Is it forgiveness? Is it a cleansing? Is it a power over some certain sin that's getting you down? That's why I think we come to this table to, to meet the Lord in faith, to, to unleash our faith, to trust in him in a way that we maybe wouldn't trust in him throughout the week. He says, take communion as often as you will. We have it available every Wednesday night. Those who want to come and take communion while we worship can do that. So right now, according to your faith, just quietly, we're just going to take a moment of silence and just pour out your heart to God. Be it unto you according to your faith. This is the body of Christ that was broken for you. Take this in remembrance of him. The same way he took the cup. This is the blood of a new covenant. The new covenant is on the cross. He paid for all our sins and by his blood we have forgiveness. The new covenant is our past sins are forgiven, our present sins he will forgive and our future sins, he will forgive. That his blood will continually cleanse us from all sin. That he is at active right now, making us without spot or blemish or any other thing. So this is a cup of celebration. We're one day gonna take it anew in heaven, but until then we come with thankfulness and say, Lord, 
I have total faith and my faith causes me to rejoice in this cup that all my sins have been paid for and they are presently being washed and cleansed. And in the future, no matter what valley I may go into, you'll be there with me. If I ascend into hell, you are there. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. You have me hedged in behind and before. Thank you, Lord, for coming into human flesh that you could be the Lamb of God and life comes in the blood and that you shed your blood that we would have eternal life. Be it unto you according to your faith. This is the blood of Christ that was shed for you. Take in remembrance of him. Mm. Hallelujah.